This morning, we, um, we are continuing in our, our series on stewardship. And um, as, we, as we close this time of music, I, you know, this is, this is one of those things that um, I think my heart is just, is just thinking still about that song, and I'm trying to, to, to bring myself to this place here. And um, so if you would, let's just take a moment and just um, pray one more time and ask God just to sit with us in his word this morning. And um, then we'll move forward. Father, you are good. And as we talk about what it means to, to look at you and hold you in the place that is enough, God, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts, that we might hear you speak to each and every one of us, at, at the place that we're at, that you would give us these moments. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So several weeks ago, we, we launched a new vision statement for our church. Um, you've seen them probably sticking everywhere around the church. Hopefully it hasn't been too annoying, but we wanted them to be everywhere, okay, <laughs> so that you would see it. That, that we desire to be a church. Um, which speaks to what we hope to be coming. It's not necessarily what we, we aren't now, but what we desire to be is a church that is united and empowered by the Holy Spirit that authentically welcomes, loves, and serves all the people of our community and world. And um, stewardship is at the core of what that means. And so this week, um, as we, we talk about this stewardship camp- campaign, I want to introduce you guys to an old friend of mine. Their picture is going to come up on the screen here. Hopefully. Oh, I got to turn this on too. That's my old friend. My wife is nodding her head. Yeah, so um, when I was growing up and I was about 16 years old, actually when I was much younger than that, 1984, in September of 1984, my dad custom ordered this car. Not that one especially, because there was something glaringly wrong with this one compared to the one we had in our, our family. But this is a 1985 Oldsmobile Delta 88 Royal Brom Coupe. Okay, when the name of a car takes two lines, that's a serious car. Okay, and that is a serious car right there. It was a five-liter engine, 307 V8, 140 horsepower. It got cut off a little bit there. Zero to 60 miles per hour in 13 seconds. It's a screamer. Okay. Max miles per hour at 104. I won't tell you whether that's true or not. It's not, by the way. It, didn't, it wouldn't even get close to that. Okay. Um, I, it probably wasn't me getting close to it because I was really scared to go fast. Okay. I'm not that guy. I got a whopping 19 miles per hour. This was the best part of this, though. The length, 18 feet, 2 inches. I'm trying to think... Like, this, this is like, I think, about 14 feet wide, looks about. So you're talking about another four feet beyond this thrust here. So we're talking, this is a, a mamba-jamba of a car, okay? 3,706 pounds. This was my car when I turned 16. It was, it was awesome, okay? But this was not the car of my 16-year-old dream. All right. This was the car of my 16-year-old dream. This is a 1992 Ford Probe. It was a stupid dream. Okay? 
just being honest with you, okay? If you had a Ford Probe, this was a dumb idea, okay? But my best friends, both of um, my best friends, older sister and brother, both had one of these. They were matching cars, which is weird. But um, one of them got a card, and the other one liked it, and so this is what it was. But this is the car that I wanted so desperately, and I asked my father for it. And the only thing I, reason I can remember is because I remember when you turned the steering wheel, all you had to do was use your pinky, and you could flip the, the blinker. And my dad looked at me and goes, you can do that on any car. But it's a probe. It's a probe. It's awesome. It's really not. This is, like, this is listed as like one of the worst sports cars of all time, literally. Okay. But this, uh, this big white thing here, and that was my nickname for it. I called it The Thing. Okay. Um, it wasn't a probe. Now, this was the kicker, though, is my dad offered me um, to buy an MG Roadster, a 1962 MG Roadster. My neighbor had it for sale, and I couldn't fit in it. <laughs> Talk about, like, 16-year-old dreams. Just no Roadster. My legs, like, when I got my feet to the pedals, my, my backside was on the headrest. I could not get in the car at all. And then my Ford Probe, gone, okay? But the 16-year-old dreams are just shattered. But, you know, this big old thing back here, um, it was wheels, okay? It meant that I could get around, and I had to learn to be content with that. And that's what we are talking about today. We're talking about cultivating contentment, okay? And um, contentment, contentment is definitely something that doesn't fit into our culture, all right? Would you guys agree with that? Contentment is difficult. Um, we need the latest and the greatest. We lease cars now instead of buying cars so that we can turn them in and get another one. Um, and basically never own a car, but we just kind of roll them over and stuff like that. Um, we do that. We do that with phones. Okay. How many of y'all have a lease on your phone? Oh man, I'm the only one. I feel stupid, babe. Maybe we should buy our phone. I don't know. All right. So, all right. I lease my phone. I'm guilty. All right. But technology does, does drive this for it. All right. We're just going to jump away from that. TVs. I was in Best Buy the other day. Do you know how big a TV is now? A 75-inch television, you know how much it costs? It's amazing. $799. How many of y'all are going to buy one today? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Noah just got, yeah, Noah's going to get one. It's a good deal. But do you know that a 4K television, that your eyes at a normal viewing range can't tell the difference between a 4K and a 1080p? It's not even possible. It's not literally possible. But, I mean, our houses get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So we have to get further and further and further away from these TVs. And so we need bigger and bigger and bigger TVs to try to make up for the distance that we are further and further and further away. You know, um, I remember somebody broke into our apartment when we lived in Chattanooga, and we went from a 19-inch television to a 13 in this big cabinet because we were po. All right, and so it's just, you know... Things are all around us. Now, I read an article in a 2017 Forbes magazine article that most Americans, and this is going to shock you probably, maybe, I don't know, are exposed to between four and 10,000 advertisements per day. And you're thinking about it now, aren't you? You're like, okay, 
I'm on my phone. If you play any type of game on your phone, you know, every time you do something cool, you have to watch an ad. It's like punishment. I don't know how that works. You're supposed to get stuff cool when you do something cool, but instead you have to watch an ad. Um, but everywhere we turn around, we've got brand names and we've got advertisements and we've got billboards and we've got magazine articles and we've got, you know, every, everything we look around, we've got advertising everywhere. And most of them are telling us that we don't have enough, that our lives are inferior, okay? We need this one thing or this other thing to make it work, that we have um, a deal that we just cannot turn down, like Noah and his 799, 75-inch television. He cannot turn it down. He's going to buy it today. Can't live without it, you know? And we've got this stuff happening all over the place. It's basically telling us, hey, listen, your life, your life is that Delta 88. And it should be at least a Ford Probe. But probably not, because it's a bad car. But the world is looking at us and telling us all the time that our lives should be better than it is. And that's a hard thing to talk about being content in our lives when that's the way that our world looks really scared that this is not doing what I'm telling it to do. But this word contentment, okay, it is, um, it's an old word. It comes back from the 1400s is when it showed up. I'm kind of a word geek. I um, love going back and looking at it. But the, the idea of what this word is supposed to communicate to us is that we become um, either contained or a better way to, to idea to think about it is that we are satisfied within a container or within the limits placed in our lives. Does that sound very American to you? What's the limit? The sky. You know, eventually the sky runs out of air, right? It's the truth. The sky is the limit is not true. There's a place where the sky disappears and it's called a vacuum contentment is difficult and the world wants to tell us all the time that the sky is the limit but it's not the truth but boundaries guardrails borders rules limits all those things that we've been conditioned in our culture to ignore they are there for a reason in our lives the world tells us that we're not supposed to embrace our limits but I want to propose to you today that God has a little bit of a different plan for us in that. Um, but let's, let's talk about these limits for a second. So who sets these limits for us in our lives? Um, obviously, we're in church, so the first thing that everybody's thinking right now is, you know, let's, let's answer the church question. God sets the limits for our lives, and, you know, there we go. Um, yes, he true. He loves us. He has a plan for us. He is all about protecting and giving us life into the fullness. So we can say that God sets limits for our lives, but... Let's also look at something. So students in this room, um, teenagers who are, you know, here today, you're thinking, uh, my parents maybe set the limits for, for me. Parents in the room, you're thinking, that's right. I set the limits for you in this room. And, you know, the parents here, you know, they have the same kind of mindset as God. They love they love their children. They want to protect them. They have a plan. They have um, good desires for them, hopefully, in all those types of ways. Um, so that's an option there. The law, 
the law sets the limits for us. We have some lawyers in the room. You know, there are things there. The government probably doesn't love us, but loves our money, but doesn't love us. But, you know, there are necessary things to, to keep us from damaging one another. Teachers in the room. My wife's a teacher. She tries really hard to set the limits for people. We know how that goes. Teachers in the room. Bosses, your boss at work. If you're a boss, don't, don't, um, don't get mad at me or anything along those lines, but we want to say, but all of these people, including God, are very good candidates. But the fact of the matter is that nobody sets limits for your contentment except for you. And that sounds a little weird. I get that. But when we start thinking about what it means to be content, when we talk about these limits, this boundary in our life that we have to take a look at, people may try to set some limits on us, or God even tries to set these limits, and they do all those things for the right intentions, but the fact of the matter is, is that the, the ability to stay within these lines right here, these boundaries that we have for our life, is relying upon our own choices in our heart. Let me give you some examples. Parents, in teaching your children, how many times have you said, well, you're just going to have to be content with blank. To have, okay, students in the room, you know, I'm your youth pastor, but your parents always win, okay? So this is an example of how this goes wrong, okay? Not how this goes right. But that kid will look at you and go, oh, hey, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to try it this way. Now, there's sometimes that that's healthy. Maybe they're exploring, they're figuring out something new. But a lot of times there's just that in-your-face kind of moment. How many of y'all were that kid? You don't want to raise your hand because your kid's sitting next to you, right? Yeah. I was that kid. All right. My mom would tell me to do something. You know, I would probably do something close to what she told me to do, but not exactly what she told me to do. Okay. That's how I know how fast that car will go. You know, just saying. The speedometer only went to 85, so I don't know beyond that. Speaking of speedometers, let's, let's get a little closer to home. Um, how many of y'all have a driver's license in this room? Yeah. Okay, this is going to get a little closer to home here, okay? So, because, you know those little signs on the side of the road that say speed limit? And we all live in the metro Atlanta area, and they say 70? How many of us go 70? Do you really go 70? Good for you. Her, her daughter is, her grown daughter's like, she does. I was late to everything. But, so... But no, I mean, it's, it's called a speed, what? Limit. You know, and what's interesting about that, and I'm guilty of this, um, you know, my wife has made me drive much faster over time. She's kind of lead-footed, and I kind of say that I got sucked into that. I blame her for something that's not her fault. But interesting enough, when you think about this too, how many lanes of the interstate all have that same speed limit? All of them. All of them have that speed limit, yet there's one called what? The fast lane. The fast lane is not the fast lane. It has the same speed limit as everything else. And so our conventions, we build these conventions of discontentment. And they changed what, we changed the limits around us because we rewrite these rules in order to make ourselves feel happy or to validate our own self-orientation where the world revolves around who we are and what we want to do when we want to do it. 
And that's difficult to hear sometimes. But however, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're trying to build lives that are not self-oriented, but God-oriented lives. That our lives flow around what he wants us to do, how he wants us to be. And cultivating contentment in our lives has to do with setting limits of what we will say, what we will think, what we will do in order to maximize our ability to bring glory to God. So in order to cultivate contentment, we have to make some choices in our lives. And this is what's called self-control, which is where this gets really interesting and beautiful, okay? It's because that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits of the Spirit right down here. And right down there at the bottom, you look at it every time you come here. It says self-control right there. And when we start to make these choices, we start to live in a way that is God-oriented in our lives. If we trust the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life, then the self-control starts to, or should start to kick in. So Paul tells us about this in one of his more famous areas of writing from the book of Philippians. And this is a famous piece of scripture. We see it, um, you go into Hobby Lobby, you see it. You go on to television, you see it. Um, there's, a, there's a football player who made a whole move about it, okay? You know, the Tebow. And we see this piece of scripture everywhere, but it is quoted improperly in a lot of ways. So we're going to take a look at it this morning. So Paul, he's in prison, and he's writing to the Philippians. And these people have loved him. They've taken care of him as best they could. They've obviously been away for, from taking care of him for a while, but he's thanking them for what, he's, what they've done. And he's sending them some encouragement for the gifts. And uh, this is what he tells them. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. We're just going to stop there for just a second, because I just want to point out again, you know, he's thanking them, but not because he's in need. But where is he? He's in prison. If you've ever known somebody who's been in prison, they are in need of a lot of things. But at the same time, he's saying this, but one of the bigger things to look at here is it says that he has learned something, which means that he's gained information. He's practiced something. He's adjusted his life. He's applying things. These are the courses of learning in our lives. And when we talk about cultivating contentment, it's like learning contentment. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that just says, oh, I'm going to be content. I'm content. It's not how it works. It's a process. It's a learning moment. It doesn't happen all at once. And the other thing to notice in this is that he has known what it is to be in need, but he also has known what it means to be having plenty. And remember now, he was a Pharisee which means that he was in a governmental high position in the church or in the, in the Jewish faith. He was probably rich. He had skills as a tent maker. We know that from the, the stories of his missionary journeys. He was obviously an important person at some point. When Stephen was being stoned, they were throwing you know, their garments at his feet as if he was in command and he was in control. He knows what it means to have had a lot 
And now he's in prison because of his faith. Now this is the piece of scripture that's probably a little bit more familiar to us. Maybe not. Well, we're just going to keep going through here. Maybe this last one got didn't get in here. Well, you're going to get a whole preview, a whole bunch of stuff. Okay. We're just going to let it. I'm going to read it to you. I have learned. Now listen to this. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That last line you've probably heard a lot. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so many times we hear this used to justify winning. Sometimes we hear it used to encourage us that there's nothing we can't do or nothing we can't have. We use it to bolster our striving rather than to be present in our contentment. But Paul, his instruction and his encouragement to us is that no matter what comes, whether it be good or bad, whether it's a job or no job in your life, whether it's dreams or no dreams, whether it's marriage or divorce, life or the loss of a loved one, friendship or disagreements, we can learn to be content in our lives. We can learn to put on the hope and trust in our lives because Christ is the one who gives us strength. So by relying on Christ to be our strength, by allowing the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit of self-control in our lives, we have this opportunity for real joy, real contentment, right where we are in these moments, rather than having to deal with the cycles of hollow happiness. Now, don't get me wrong, happiness is pretty awesome but it's really based on what is happening right now. As soon as those circumstances change, all of a sudden, where are you at? If you're searching for happiness when things happen in your life that don't go like what you expected, where do you turn? But contentment comes with joy. It comes with understanding that in the midst of being in prison, you can be content and understand that you have what you need because of what God has already provided for you. So, let me jump through here. Proverbs says something pretty awesome. The whole book does, but this is pretty awesome compared to what we were talking here. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. You know, in the time when the writer wrote the book of Proverbs, the cities were built like Noonan would have been built with a huge wall all the way around it to keep out attackers to keep out looters but the walls around the city broke man just people came flying in and they took over cities and they pulled people out of them and you talk about a nation of people who were put in exile and they would take these people and pull them out and put them into other nations and take them away from their homes and Adam Hamilton the one who wrote the book that we've been basing our stewardship um, process on he says it like this The opposite of self-control is slavery. If we really think about it, 
all those advertisements we see, all those things in our lives that are around us, if we let down our walls and start to buy into the message that they say, then we've become slaves to it. And so as we, we think about this, you know, we've got to look at all this kind of stuff and they say, what do we do with this stuff? You know, I mean, we, we have some questions and I just, I want to run through these as, as quickly as I can, but things to help us to cultivate contentment in our lives. And the first one, when we have these situations and to look at our lives and the situation that we might be in, whatever it is, we can ask this first question is, could this be worse? You know, could... Could the five-year-old car that you own, could it be worse? Yeah. Can your outdated clothes, could it be worse? Yeah. You know, Kelly and I have been in 13 different countries, I think. Maybe not that many. 13 different times, maybe. I'm getting confused. A lot of different countries. Okay. But I will never forget a trip to the Dominican Republic and we were working on the western part of the country next to Haiti, where, and it was the year after the, the earthquake hit in Haiti. And thousands, hundreds of thousands of people put out of their homes. We were working in refugee camps. And we had this little group of students there with us and their parents and different people. We're building latrines, holes in the ground for them to use the bathroom in. And there are children walking up and down these streets. And we look out, and in the distance, there's a boy walking across the road with no clothes on. And this is a hard thing for us to hear sometimes, to think about. But the fact that we'll quickly go and buy new things And there are children not that far from us who just have nothing. He wasn't trying to buck a system or any of this kind of stuff. He had nothing. Could it be worse? Yeah. It could be worse. How long will this thing make me happy? This is the happiness and the circumstances. How long is this thing that I'm going to have? How long is it going to last? You know, is it going to be 10 minutes and then go? How many, how many parents have experienced the, the toy box syndrome where you get your kid a toy and they play with it for three minutes and then they jump in the box? And you thought, I could have just gone down to U-Haul and bought a box. You know, boxes are awesome. How long will this thing that I got, how long will it make me happy? This one might be one of the hardest ones. Is this gratification or is this gratitude? You know, my my assistant, Craig Bryan, you guys have known him for a long time probably. He says something that his professor told him one time before. He said, hey, listen, if you're going to build your house, you should build your house on Gratitude Street. You should orient your life. Put your house, put who you are in a place where you can be thankful for the things that you have. And so gratitude allows us to take a look at what we already have and be thankful for it and not worry so much about the things that might be coming and what we don't have. So is this, am I looking for this thing? And this this is not just about buying things. You know, is your husband or your wife, are you not happy? 
well, maybe you go find somebody else. This is what our culture says. It's not true. And finally, does this satisfy my soul? Does this help me grow in my relationship with Christ? Does this pull me away from him? Does it help me communicate or does it help communicate to me how I was made? Does it give to the, the image of God and who I am and in other people? Because this is what Paul said was the, the secret, right? That in Christ we find our strength to be content. So could this be worse? How long will this make me happy? Is this gratification or is this gratitude? Does this satisfy my soul? Things that we can ask ourselves when it comes down to the moments that we have to make these self-controlling choices. We can do these things to honor God in the midst of that. Now, I wanted to put this up here one more time. My old friend. You know, when I was younger, this car took my whole family to Disney World all at once. Mom, dad, grandmother, great-grandmother, my teenage brother. We're up to five now. You haven't heard me. I rode in the back windowsill all the way 800 miles there and back. This is before car seats were required. Okay? It was awesome. I colored the whole way. This car was bought brand new. It was my dad's company car. He got the special order. The one thing that was missing on this, my dad had 1985 Corvette mirrors installed on the doors. It was so fly. This car saved my life twice. I was a very young driver. I didn't turn the way I was supposed to. I ran into a 1992 Volkswagen Cabriolet. It weighed 1,700 pounds less than this car. The front end of my car popped up, slammed down on the hood, and my back wheels ran over the car. They had to tow that car away because the back wheels didn't touch the ground anymore, and I drove my car home. We got it fixed, and a year later, somebody ran a red light and slammed into the front of me. And this car saved my life twice. And we got it fixed again. I drove this car from the time I was 17. I took sole ownership of it until I was 22 or something like that. I had my first date with my wife in the thing. The speedometer didn't work. I drove everywhere super slow, drove her crazy. This car was a, a good car. It was not what my 16-year-old heart wanted, but when I look back on it now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And honestly, if I could find it and buy it back and I had the cash to do it, I would. Same thing with my old blue truck. If I could find my old blue truck, I would go get it. Okay. These things in our lives, sometimes we don't realize what we have. Sometimes we don't realize the things that are already there and the capacity and the bandwidth that we might have if we were content with it. And so as we talk about stewardship, 
the idea of this is not so that we learn to be content. And I'm not trying to stand up here because I'm the last person who would say this to you probably, that if you will be content, you'll have more money and the church could get more of your money. Okay, that's, Let's just be honest because when we stand in stewardship, a lot of times that's what people come with the concept ahead of time is that people are looking for my money. But what I want to help you understand is that when we live in contentment, the bandwidth of what we have left over because we have chosen to be self-controlled allows us to bless the world around us. So I know we're we're late on time. I talk too long all the time. You're going to have to get used to it if I'm going to preach. But here's the thing. When Kelly and I were making our move into ministry, there was a couple in our church who had more money than I ever imagined that they could have had. And they had chosen at that point in time to retire in their lives, and they were going to take their lives, and they were going to move into a tiny little apartment, even though they had enough money to be like have drivers and roses and all this kind of stuff. They were going to move into a little two-bedroom apartment and just live their lives and enjoy their business and enjoy their family and all this kind of stuff. And God spoke to their hearts and said, I want you to build something big. And they were like in their 60s. They were, trying to, they were trying to shut something down in their life. And he looked at them and he said, I want you to build something big because people are coming. And so they built a seven-bedroom house with a 20,000-gallon pool and another house behind it, a pool house and all this kind of stuff. And then people just started coming. Two of them were my wife and I. And they let us live with them for six months before we transitioned to go back to seminary and go to school and all this kind of stuff. They had the bandwidth in their life to allow God's work to happen. And so they hadn't spent up everything that they had. They hadn't put themselves into a place where they couldn't open their lives to other people because they were just trying to survive where they were because they were trying to keep going with everything they had. They were beautiful people who just wanted a simple life, but they had the bandwidth to follow God because they were content with what God had put before them. And so when we talk about contentment, and cultivating in that lot in our lives, we have the opportunity to build space, to build bandwidth for people so that they can love and know God the way that we love and know God. It goes back to that vision statement that we can love them authentically. Everyone, we can welcome them, we can serve them because we have the bandwidth to do it, because we're content in the strength that God gives us. So this morning, as we, as we close, and I know the bands, you know, some of them are waiting in the wings, like, come on, Brent. But as we, as we close this, I don't know where this is hitting you in your heart, but our altars are always open. You can come to this place and allow God to speak to you, whether or not there's something there that is, is you know, you, you want to step into that process, allowing God to help you learn to be content. You want to thank God for the blessings that you have. You want to ask him to hear, like this couple, where in my bandwidth do you want me to give my life? But as we, as we talk about this contentment, folks, we got we to gotta show this world something different. And we need the bandwidth. We need the space to do that. So I encourage you to ask God to make that space in your heart. Let's pray as we close. Father, this morning we love you. We thank you. 
that you are good. And there's so many things in our lives that maybe we don't need. And it's, it's not wrong to want any of those things. It's not wrong to do that. But God, help us to, to set our orientation on you. To not be self-oriented, but to be God-oriented. To allow our lives to, to be open before you. And to allow our resources to be used by you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you. As we worship you now, God, lead our hearts and open our hearts to the things you would want us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray.